Today is the official kickoff of our uh, new ministry, Fathers in the Field. Those of you that, that have been moved or feel God calling on you, you men, uh, we would like to invite you to a lunch downstairs uh, immediately after this to hear more about it. Our, our representative, Brian DeWitts, uh, will be down there to answer any questions you have. Um, but this is a very important ministry to us and kind of a, a heartbeat of mine. Um, the, the, uh, the, my time in youth ministry showed me I was, I was in youth ministry for nine years before becoming a senior minister, and my time in youth ministry showed me that involved dads equaled engaged kids. Um, there's a, a dads who were involved in church and their faith tended to have kids that were engaged in our youth ministry and were more likely to continue their faith after high school, and no two ways about it. That wasn't a, it wasn't, didn't happen all the time, but there's a positive correlation in that. And Catalyst, the church you're sitting in right now, was planted on that premise that reaching the family can be done best by reaching the men. Um, and, uh, we, but we are in a, we're strange. We're an anomaly, you all. We really are. Um, a few years ago, uh, Sam and I, my son and I, were, were, came back from working out on a Monday night. And r- my wife, Rachel, and my daughter, Elsie, were sitting there watching a movie. And it was called, I'm in love with a church girl. Definitely not a movie that my son and I were really into, but, but I sat there and, 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 and watched it, and it had all the stereotypes of American Christianity. It had a thug guy who was only interested in sex. It had a good girl who loved church. Uh, it, it had a mom who led the family in prayer. Uh, and, and when the mom died in, in a hospital bed, uh, she told the, her son to go after God. All right, and, and it is such a common story that uh, hardly anyone notices it anymore. All spirituality, basically, spiritual leadership revolved around the mom, the woman. And the guys were in, the, in, the, in the movie were passive observers at best. I wonder how that movie would have done if the roles had been reversed. Dream with me here. Let's see if Hollywood would succeed with a movie like this, a rebellious girl in a church-going guy. Uh, they go to dinner with the parents, and the dad leads the family in prayer. Um, the father asks a young man what his intentions are regarding uh, his daughter. He responds to have a biblical marriage, to stay faithful to her and children, and, and lead them to Christ of first importance. This time, the dad, as he's dying in the hospital bed, tells his daughter to go after God. That's a strange movie, huh? Can you all imagine a movie like that? Well, interesting, it just, all, all that just kind of reinforces stereotypes here, that cr- the Christian leadership in the home, mom does it. Um, that's very different from what we see in the Bible. First Kings 2, 1 through 4, and this is about King David, some of King David's last words. He's known as a man after God's own heart. Look what he tells his son Solomon as he's on his deathbed, and he wants his last words. Check this out. Uh, when the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon, his son. I'm about to go the way of the earth, he said, so be strong. Act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me, that if your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. All right? This was not Solomon's mother Bathsheba telling him. This was his father telling him this. He looks at his son. He says, son, I'm circling the drain, man. 
I'm about to buy the farm, kick the bucket, start pushing up daisies, uh, bite the dust, cashing my chips, cross the River Jordan, go on a Texas Kate walk, take a dirt nap, uh, swing low sweet cherries. I'm toast, son. Okay? That's what he says. So be strong. Be a man. Do what God commands. Do this so it will go well with you, my son. That life will work out for you. And if you don't do these things, son, David is telling Solomon, you're going to be walking uphill with the wind in your face your whole life. Honor God. Be a man. Walk in obedience to him, son. What amazing words from a father. What amazing words from a man to the next generation. We usually don't hear those words from men, do we? It's usually mom who leads, he tells the family to get ready for church. It's usually mom who cares about the faith of the person their children are dating. Dad usually only wants to know one thing, right? You got a job, boy? It's about all, uh, all the dads care about. Or if it's a girl, if the son's dating a girl, he wants to know if she's good looking. That's about the only things you hear about, but that's not what the Bible shows. So how have we gotten here? How have we uh, seemingly you know, turned so far away from what the Bible tells us when the Bible tells us something radically different? The question I, I, I wrestle with, do men hate church? Do men hate church? Well, one of the most common comments I hear when people visit Catalyst is, man, there are a lot of guys here. And, and that, that is true. And there are. And I'm thankful for every one of you. And I'm thankful for all you ladies, too. That's not the norm around the nation. Women tend to be, at least in, in American culture, Western culture is more religious than men. That's not, like I said, that's not the norm around the world. In other cultures, it's the exact opposite. In Muslim countries, men are overtly religious. They make no bones about it. Overtly religious. Same is true in other cultures around the world. So what's going on in Western cultures with the men and their disengagement from faith? What, what, what is going on? Well, I've heard all the explanations of why men won't engage in faith. Uh, somebody told me once, well, in order to be part of a church, you have to stop doing things you like and start taking orders from God, and men aren't into that. Wrong. Men join the military in droves. They really do. They, they have no problems joining the military where they can't do what they want and they have to do what their CEO says. That, that's, that's not it. They'll willingly leave homes and friends to go serve. That, that, that's not it. Well, another person will say, well, in order to go to church, you have to sing. Men just aren't into that. <laughs> Wrong. Go to any bar on a Saturday night. Men are singing raucously. Uh, you, I, I've been to soccer matches in England <laughs> where the men sing the entire game. There's a song. I found this out. There's a song for every corner kick, every goal kick, every goal, every throw in, and it's always directed to the other team's mothers. That's about what they're singing about, okay? And, and it's really, actually, it's actually, it's really funny. If you go to a soccer game over in Europe, the men sing the entire game. And it's that those songs that they sing identify them with their team, with their fan base. It's like an identity thing. So it's not the men don't like to sing. And another person says this, well, people say in order to be part of a church, you have to be a wimp. You have to be a, a, a nice guy. You have to surrender your masculinity. Uh, and, and you basically have to become a chick. Ah, now we're a little bit closer to the problem. Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s said this. There's gotten into our heads a notion somehow that if you become a Christian, you sink your manliness and turn milksop. Well, that's not the way Christianity was started. Christianity was started among blue-collar dudes. Jesus was a carpenter. For you carpenters out there, it's a little bit of different. He couldn't go to Lowe's and get pre-cut lumber. He got an order for a table. He had to go out back, take his saw and his hand axe, and cut down a tree, make his own boards 
with hand tools and then make it, uh, he probably had to make his own nails, make his own everything, okay? Jesus' hands were probably very rough. He was probably extremely strong when having to do all that kind of labor. The disciples were fishermen. They were workers. They were laborers. All right, how was Jesus able to reach the very people the church is having problems reaching? Well, well, this is what Jesus did, I'll tell you. And this is what we must do in order to build the kingdom to reach the family. This is how the church can reach men and, build, and therefore reach the family. Check this out. Number one, must call men to a purpose, not to a set of rules. When Jesus called his disciples, Mark chapter 1, 16 through 18, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Well, at once they left their nets and followed him. When Jesus said, follow me, it wasn't to go sit in a chair somewhere and show up once a week. He invited the men into an adventure. He said, come follow me. There's a lot of stuff We've got to get done. There's an adventure waiting for you, basically. Come follow me. I'll send you out to fish for people, to win the lost, to engage in God's purposes for the world. Andrew, disciples, I have, a per- I have an adventure for you. When the church stopped inviting men into the adventure, we lost the men. Every man needs an adventure to live. Author John Eldridge said that in his book, Wild at Heart. Every man needs an adventure to live. It's close to our hearts. When, when, when I was a young man charting out the course of my life, in high school and college, I can tell you this, there wasn't much that appealed to me. There really wasn't. I didn't want to sit in some cubicle somewhere crunching numbers. That's, that's fine for some people, that's not for me. It's not my personality. I didn't, want to, uh, I didn't want to sit behind the counter of a store. I heard people complaining, the adults, the people that were 10, 15, 20 years older than me, complaining about how much they hated their jobs, how much they hated their bosses, how much they hated Mondays and how they couldn't wait to get to Fridays. And then the weekends, they would just destroy themselves and come back hating Mondays. And looking forward to Friday, rinse, repeat. Why would I join them? That sounded miserable, you all, to a young man. And I asked some of my college friends my senior year, you know, we were all charting out our, our courses of our lives, and, and some were going to graduate school, some were going to jobs, and, and I asked them about this, and they all said, well, you got to earn a living. And I said, no, you don't have to earn a living, you have to live. I didn't want to fritter my life away in meaninglessness and purposeless in the name of earning a living. One of the more popular poems that was around back then. I use it at funerals sometimes. It's called How You Spend Your Dash. You know, you see at a, few, at a, at a, a tombstone, you see a born, you have a birth date and a death date, and there's a dash, and the poem was talking about the, the dates aren't important, about how you live your dash. What kind of life did you live? And, and I, I watch people share that and celebrate it and then go live their bored existence. Hating Mondays, loving Fridays. Hating Mondays, loving Fridays, rinse, repeat for the rest of your life. And so I was invited by society to be a part of that, as you have been. Just following along the path that our, our, the, pre, the previous generations laid out for us. Them being miserable, people living a life of quiet despair, raising another generation to, uh, to live a life of quiet despair, raising another generation to leave, lead a life of quiet despair. That's what I saw. And then Jesus came along, and he invited me to follow him. And he would give me a commission to the kingdom with things to accomplish, risk and reward. All of a sudden, 
Life started to get very interesting. He invited me not just to a job. He invited me to an adventure. Uh, I've been a Christian since I was 17 years old. And the steps of my adventure, I, I can't speak to yours, but I can share you mine, okay? That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to share you the adventure that Jesus called me to, all right? This is what he does. The first step was this, is that he freed me from mistakes, guilt, and, and, and shame of the past. So much of our lives, you all, is spent basically being in prison to the things that happen to us, things that we can't do anything about now, things that we have no control over now, and it paralyzes us. You can't engage the adventure with your past, like, like chains around your, around, your, around your life. And he freed me from all that. The second part of the adventure was this, is that he made me more myself than ever. This will sound very strange. Let me explain what it means. As a young man, I realized that God had created my personality and my passions and the, my interests and my likes. And, and, and when he created that, he pronounced it good. Okay? Now, he, he took those things and he steered those away from, the, from the, uh, the, the destructive tendencies that young men have. And he steered them without changing them. He steered them into where I could be productive for the kingdom. For example, the same stubbornness that could get me in so much trouble when, that, that when I was a kid. God took and used that to preach his word against opposition and insults. He took that same stubbornness that, my parent, that drove my parents crazy, and he used it for his purposes. Uh, he, the same jump in the water and build, then build the canoe. Type, I'm like, I, I, those of you guys that know me, they, that, that's what I do. I, I don't really plan very well. We, we jump in the water, and then we figure out how to build the canoe. Okay, That's, that's how God made me. That's what drives people crazy because a lot of times we go without a plan and we just kind of adapt and everything like that. God used that and steered that in a direction to send me to places where people who plan wouldn't go. To plant a church, to do missions. People that think things through and analyze don't do those things because they're foolish. But God used that part of my personality instead of steering it in a destructive pattern moved it into accomplishing his will. The very things about me that could really hurt me in life, God didn't change. He redirected them for his kingdom. And that's what he does. The things that you love, your personality, the things that you like, he doesn't, he takes those things and uh, if they're toxic, he needs to remove them. But if they're, they're, they're part of his creation, he moves them into a direction that can accomplish his will. And that's the adventure, you all. All right? My dad confessed to me a few years ago. He and mom were really worried about me when I was, when I was younger. They thought I had two career possibilities. I'd either be a pastor or international nuclear smuggling gang cartel member. Okay, there, there's no in between. That's, that's, so so that, that's true. But see, God made me more fully myself, you all. He made me more fully myself. He took the things I cre he created me with, both good and bad, and steered them in a direction to accomplish his will. And then the next part of my adventure was God called me to be a husband and a father. That's an adventure in and of itself. I was to use this gift of masculinity that he gave me that is so mocked and ridiculed and downplayed and criticized in this culture and use it to, to, create, a, to, to create a home that's honoring to him, to raise a family to love him and to please him, to protect and defend. That's an adventure. And then God called me into ministry. The next step of the adventure, um, it, it, to be a, then to be a church planner, to set off an adventure that no one thought would succeed with total risk and total reward as part of the equation. Man, my, heart's, my heart was beating. And then to invite my family into that adventure. Then God called me to the jails to go teach inmates about him. Not safe places, not places where people who plan go. And then God called us catalyst last year 
to not just be a church, but to be a church planting movement. For the last 20 years, I, I probably have 20 to 25 years left in ministry, God willing, for the next 20, 25 years, to be a church planting movement where we build the kingdom and we reach people through having as many church plant children as possible, elevate being our firstborn. That's the adventure. That's what Jesus invited men into, not just a set of rules, but to an adventure with him as the guide. And that's what the church must do to reach men, all right? So the question is, are we doing that? And I look back and I realize I'm not making a living. I'm living because God's called me to the adventure. And as author John Elder said, God calls us to live from our hearts. Jesus invited men into an adventure. Church needs to do that as well. See, Jesus got 12 blue-collar dudes to drop their careers and follow him, whereas most churches can't even get guys to drop their remote control on Sunday mornings. Let's call men to a purpose, not a set of rules. Second thing we have to do is this. We must call men to sacrifice, not languish in comfort and mediocrity. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul writes this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and improve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. About 20 years ago, a friend of mine who's a pastor invited me over to his house. He said, I've got a movie you need to see. A movie called Fight Club. If you guys have seen that movie, I do not recommend it for people who are not adults. It's, 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 morality is not good. But it is, does make some very, very, very strong statements about men in society. And, it's, and, and I, would, I would recommend you guys watching that. It starts off with the main character working in 9 to 5. All right, filling his life with orders from catalogs, spending his whole time getting the perfect furniture and the perfect this and the perfect that. And then he meets Tyler Durden, which is Brad Pitt's character, and they start fighting. More dudes show up and they fight. Soon there's a huge underground meeting where guys show up just to fight each other. And they love it. And they're hugging, they build community, they build friendship. And basically the movie's making commentary about this comfort and ease lifestyle that has been suggested to us that is unfulfilling. And men are so lost that the only thing that they appreciate, the only thing they enjoy in life is this animalistic nature of beating each other up. It's masculinity moving in the wrong direction. And the ease uh, with which these men are drawn in by this showed the discontent they have with what they were told to do by society. They wind up forming a cult and committing acts of terrorism and all kinds of stuff. It's really a commentary on what happens when masculinity, it goes awry. The life of the 95, nine to five buying furniture and material things didn't appeal to these guys. A life of comfort and mediocrity, according to Fight Club, didn't appeal to the hearts of men. And I would say that this observation is very correct. Ladies, I want to cue you in on something. A lot of, us, a lot of stuff about guys you don't understand, but here's, here's, I'm going I'm to tell you something about this. This is, this is, this is actually kind of cool. Almost every guy I've talked to, if they're honest, has actually dreamed about dying. Did you know that? Uh, and the guy's like, huh, I don't, hang on. Maybe they haven't dreamed that dream in a while, but it's happened. And here's the thing that may just want you, make you want to scratch your head, ladies, and say, hmm, I, every man I've talked to has dreamed about dying while saving someone else. Every guy has had the dream of running to a burning building, throwing the person out as the, as the roof collapsed on him, and that's how they go out. <laughs> 
Every guy has dreamed of taking a bullet for his wife or kids or some innocent victim and dying that way. In the movie Armageddon, several years ago, Bruce Willis, when Bruce Willis decides to take one for the team and stay behind and, and, and push, the, push the button on the nuclear uh, bomb that will destroy the asteroid and save humanity, every guy in the movie theater wanted to be Bruce Willis. We didn't want to be the guys on the space shuttle coming back. That was lame. We wanted to be the guy that gave his life for others. And that's not strange, you all. We were made in God's image. Uh, of course, the thought of sacrificing ourselves to save others would be near and dear to our hearts. That's what Jesus did. We were made in his image. So it's very, 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 very normal that that's what we would dream of. Many of us have lost that, men. We let materialism and comfort and ease lull us away from our hearts, away from that image we were created in, but it's there. It is there. Maybe you've forgotten it. Maybe you've written it off, man, as a childish fantasy of a, oh, I've just watched too many war movies. I've just watched too many movies, and that's where they come. No, no, that comes from your heart. It, you were made in the image of God. Sacrifice is written on your hearts, men, because you were made in the image of God. The church must call men back to sacrifice, back to our hearts. Interestingly enough, ladies and guys, where there's no sacrifice involved, men really aren't interested. We really aren't. If there's no sacrifice involved, we tend to walk away. We walk away from things we don't sacrifice for. For example, we easily walk away from things we haven't put money towards. How do you know you're serious about buying a car? When you put earnest money down, right? How do you know you're serious about buying a house? When you put a deposit down. That's why the word deposit was, it was, was created. Right? The only things we really care about are things we sacrifice for. And then the church comes along and says, by the way, people, follow Jesus and you can have an easy life and, and, and you'll go to heaven when you die and God will make everything easy for you. Well, that honestly doesn't sound, that doesn't sound very appealing. It sounds kind of boring, honestly. We know that something for nothing never, never work out. You know what would get men in church by the droves? <laughs> Try this. Maybe we need to advertise this on our Facebook page. Maybe, maybe we need to maybe start a catalyst marketing campaign. And see, you want to get men in church by the droves? Advertise a church like this. Wanted. Risk takers for God. We need 200 men to go where no one wants to go. Chance of bodily injury high. Pay at scale is low. Chance to save the world one person at a time. A high commitment is required. Safety not guaranteed. Reward is great. Inquire within. There'll be a line of dudes out there. You know, that sounds awesome. True, men? fastest growing religion in Europe right now is Islam. Islam makes incredible demands on its followers. You have to pray five times per day toward Mecca for starters. Incredible sacrifices required. And men are drawn to Islam in droves. It's also growing quickly in jails, men looking for purpose. Uh, but it, it capitalized on aggrievement and race issues, I understand that. But the, the calls men to dress differently, to sacrifice, to honor a code. The more calls to sacrifice, the more men will engage. And the church has done uh, men and the families no favors by making it as easy as possible to be a member of a church. Jesus called his followers to sacrifice. They gave up jobs, income, and one of the only one of the original uh, disciples died of natural causes. The others died these awful, gruesome martyrs' deaths. And they stayed true to the end. When churches come along and make relatively few calls uh, to sacrifice, throw a buck, into, buck or two in the plate, Occasionally, show up once a month to church. If that, hey, you're good. Men tend to leave. Men conclude it's not worth their time. Churches that expect high commitment of their people are growing. 
Churches that expect relatively little of their people, they're fading to meaninglessness and have very few, if any, men. Find out what's worth dying for, men, then go live for it. As a church, we must call men to sacrifice because that's written on our hearts. We are made in the image of God, and Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That is our story. Third thing, and I, I say this is probably the saddest part. I, I, this really bothered me when I was getting this sermon together. This part bothered me. We must restore the missing man. Matthew 9, 1 through 7. I was reading this. It just hit me. Jesus stepped, stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came into town. Some men brought with him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. The man got up and went home. And what does that have to do with men? Well, check this out. There were four guys that saw one of their friends in crisis. And they decided to do something about it. So they put their friend on a mat. Somebody said, listen, there's a guy named Jesus over here, and we're taking you to him. Bob, Larry, Wyatt, let's go. And they put him on there. And they take him. And the scripture says, when Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the man on the mat. We don't know anything about him. When Jesus saw the faith of the friends, of the men, he said, take up your mat and walk, you're healed. Men, we, when we engage and we are a factor in solving problems, when we are engaged in the lives of other people, bring them to Jesus, we can literally, our faith can literally heal someone else. Like I said, these, these, the, the, this is very strange because they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have that kind of stuff. So how did they know the guy was paralyzed? Well, they probably lived on the same street. They probably were neighbors. And that meant that the men knew what was going on on the street. These men, if I, had to, if I had to presume, they're probably men who stood watch over their street. There was dangerous times. There were robbers, thieves, bandits, all kinds of things. Uh, they kept an eye on the teenagers to make sure they didn't get out of line. That meant they were watching each other's property. They are stepping in to solve a problem before it got out of hand. It's probably the kind of men these were. Kind of like a lot of the dads on the street when I was growing up. We never saw a cop car on my street because anyone who's got out of line, one of the dads in the house would come out and whoop us. We never saw a cop car. We never, got, we never encountered the justice system because the dads were there to put us, in, put us straight before it got out of hand. It was the men noticing the problem. Is the men getting together to do something about it? And what happens when men aren't there? What happens when the men aren't there to do that? What would happen to that paralyzed guy if the men weren't there to take him to Jesus? What would happen? He just stayed paralyzed, right? Well, unfortunately, we're going to see what that, what that looks like. I, I, I saw this parenting magazine photo. Check this out. Noticing the missing on those, those photos? I'm not, I'm not bashing motherhood at all. Motherhood's awesome. My wife's an amazing mother. I wouldn't be anything without my mother. But what's missing? Where are the men? They're not there. That's the, that's the, that's the vision that the media has for the family now. No men. Baltimore is a city in crisis. There's no two ways about it. Back in 2015, a young black man was killed while in police custody, and, and CNN writer John Blake, who grew up in Baltimore, went back to his old neighborhood to see what was going on, to do some firsthand reporting. 
very, very, very amazing article. And it was entitled, The Lord of the Flies Comes to Baltimore. Look at the bottom. CNN writer, the older black men were gone. In it, he writes about his street growing up where there were men in every home. He, li he lived downtown Baltimore, blue-collar industrial uh, uh, neighborhood. Steel workers, blue-collar men who sat on the front porches at night watching the Orioles baseball games and watching over the street. If they saw gangs of young men running around, they'd set them straight because there were men everywhere. He said, all of those men are gone. He walked his old neighborhood and it had changed. He said, he talked with the people who lived there and asked where all the men were. They said, they're in jail or dead. The saddest line in the entire article is this next one, right here. Unlike Walter Boyd, one of the guys that, that lived there, the old men I did see in my neighborhood this week were broken down, unshaven. I thought to myself, if you want to destroy people, first break their men. Now, we as men are fearful when we walk through the group of boys, Robert Boyd said. When we were boys, when we walked through a group of men, we felt secure. Something is wrong. You want to destroy people, first break their men. Seems like Baltimore case studies and what happens when the missing man when the men are missing. We all know what shape it's in. School systems are failing. Crime and corruption are rampant. If you want to destroy people, first break their men. Remember, it's easier to raise a child than to fix an adult, you all. The church must present a vision for manhood to our young men, to men, but also to our young men, to the boys growing up in here, boys in our, in our, in our society. We must present a different vision, a different one that society has. The church must champion the vision of biblical manhood of traditional masculinity, of emphasizing the importance of marriage, fatherhood, work, and masculinity because those things are not being championed right now. I can't tell you how many young men I talk to that are not interested in marriage, that are not interested in fatherhood, that are not really even interested in working. All of the signs of traditional manhood are missing from them right now. I forced myself to watch podcasts this week, and I even had discussions with our 22-year-old youth minister Donovan, about this. I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't been on the dating scene since 1993, and I hated it back then. I can't even imagine what it's like now. Um, but uh, these podcasts uh, were, were all by guys where bitter men basically talk about dating and how awful women are, trying to steer men at all costs away from marriage and fatherhood, talking about how awful these women are, and, and, and they, they find the worst videos of the biggest whiners and, and complainers and divas portraying them as the stereotypical woman and steering men away from them. And our young men are watching this. Believe me, they're watching it. In cities like Baltimore are our future if men leave. We need to have a church that acts like those four men that brought their friend to Jesus. Men who were engaged with the problems in their community, that were engaged with their neighborhoods, that were engaged with the people around them and did something about it. They didn't sit there and passively wait. They picked up their friend and took him to Jesus and, and it resulted in his healing. That's the kind of church we need to be. I posted this on my Facebook page and one of our members, my friends, Adam Tipton, commented and said this, so many times I've been the paralytic and it's always been my wife, my two church families, that surrounded me and helped me through. So grateful to the great people, First Christian Church and Kenosha and Catalyst for loving and caring for me where I am. Many times we are that, that paralyzed guy. But most of the time we're not. Most of the time we are, the, we are capable of carrying a mat and we're not. 
and I'm going to restore the missing man. David told Solomon, like I said, be strong, act like a man. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the law of Moses. So do this and you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go, that the Lord may keep his promise to me. Men, I'm challenging you right now. Refuse mediocrity. Refuse disengagement. Refuse passivity. I'm gonna ask you guys to do something. There's an acronym called DELI. D-E-L-I. Stands for disciple, engage, lead, and influence. Called to disciple. The first one, disciple. We're called to pass on our faith to others. The reason that you are a believer in Christ, if you are one today, is because somebody passed their faith on to you. Don't be the last person to hear about Christ. One-on-one, uh, -on -one, you don't have to ever preach a sermon to lead someone to Christ. There are people in your life, maybe you're starting with your own family, that need to know about Jesus. If, it, it may, if it's not your family, it's someone else. You get together for coffee once a week. Uh, go to lunch. Sit there and t pass on what you know about Christ. You have someone that you're actively sharing your faith with, men and women. There are plenty of people out there, people you know, and they will meet with you. They will meet with you, and they will learn from you. You just have to find them. The second is engage. Engage. Like the men who brought their friend to Jesus, we must be engaged. Engaged in our homes, engaged in our church, engaged in life. Not laying around drunk on weekends. Not frittering life away in your man caves, telling people to leave you alone. It's not what an engaged man does, right? Engage. Third is lead. Be the example. Be active. See who is in need around you. Don't wait for someone to tell you what to do. Lead. And the fourth is influence. My life motto is be influential. A friend of mine told me that he got clean from drugs, not because he saw his brother shot next to him, not because of the, the, uh, the bad stuff with addiction, not because of anything else. He said, I came to the realization that every single person that met me was worth off, worse off for it. And, and he said, that's what caused me to change. And I thought, well, what if every person that met me was better off? How, what if I was influential that way? What if every single person that encountered me was, better, was having a better day, was more joyful, was more loving, more, more passionate? You know, what, how could that be? And so that, was, that was my, became my life motto, be influential. And that's what I want you guys to do too. Pastor Vadi Bocham wrote this, the church does not meet as often as the home. Thus, if Christ is to be worshipped daily, it is incumbent upon the home to play an important spiritual role. Consequently, fathers as heads of households are thrust into a pastoral role. I love that. All over the news right now, I'm going to invite the band back up. All over the news right now is Ivy League transgender swimmer Leah Thomas. As a man, he, was, he used to be known as Will Thomas, he was ranked number 462 in NCAA men's swimming. Now claiming as a female, he's ranked number one for the University of Pennsylvania, shattering records this year. I don't particularly care about swimming. I don't particularly care about records. I really don't. However, I read a story that bothered me far more than these competitions. Several of Thomas's teammates, females, said that he walks around naked in the women's locker room. Now remember, he's a biological male. The 35 women on the team report feelings of extreme discomfort seeing this, as he openly talks about dating women, which he still does. And my daughters were college athletes. 
My question when I read this article, where are the dads? Where are the dads of these young women? There's a dude walking around naked in their locker room. Where are the men? Where are the dads calling the president of the college? Where are the dads protecting their daughters? People say, well, there's nothing can be done. Well, then where are the dads saying, we're going to pull you out of University of Pennsylvania and send you somewhere else? Where are the dads protecting their daughters, stepping up? Where are they? They may be doing that. I just haven't heard. I hope they're standing up. But I haven't heard one story from one father doing anything about it. What a shame. Throw our daughters to the wolves in the name of not creating ways of not being politically incorrect. Where are the men being the pastors of their families there? The fact that the dads have said nothing speaks volumes. The failure of men to disciple, engage, lead, and influence is why we are where we are today. Men, we have a calling. I believe that both my wife and I will stand before Jesus one day. I believe that. I believe that everyone in here will stand before Jesus one day as well. However, I believe that as a man, I will be asked different things than my wife. I believe Jesus will look at me, not my wife, me, and say, I blessed you with four children. Did you lead them to me? I don't think he's going to ask my wife that. He's going to ask me. He's going to ask me, were you the representation of me that I wanted you to be to your children? From you, David, did they learn that I was good, faithful, loving, and powerful? Did you represent me to your family the way I wanted you to? Did you prioritize the things for your family that I wanted you to prioritize? I believe that. That's going to be directed towards me. I believe that men and women will both have to give an account to God, but I believe my accountability will be very different than my wife's. She has roles to play as well. However, the spiritual condition of the family, I believe, is what I will be held accountable for as dad, as man. And I believe that's true for all of us men. And I want to issue this challenge to us as a church and to the men. Disciple, engage, lead, and influence. That is the call. And if any of you all would like to be influential in the life of a fatherless boy, and you men, if you've been stirred today, if you feel the Holy Spirit calling you, I want to invite you down to lunch, immediately following service. Hear more about a ministry where you can do that. If, even if that isn't you, then let's go home, men, and let's start being the pastors in our families. Let's disciple, engage, lead, and influence so that our families may benefit, so that it is good for our families, so that when we stand before God as men and God asks you those questions, we can say unashamedly, yes, Lord, I did what you wanted me to do. That's what my prayer is for every single one of you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, as, uh, as you've called us to, uh, as, as Jesus called the men, Lord, I pray that, that you would call the men here, not some chauvinistic, macho thing like that, but so that our families and the society may benefit, that we can serve uh, the way that you did, that, we can, that you can call us to the adventure as you called your disciples, and that we can influence for good. Lord, I see the family as that paralytic, paralytic laying on a mat, and, and I see uh, the opportunity for us men to pick, pick up our families and lead them to you and let you heal them. And Lord, it's going to take engagement to do that. So I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, you would bless us, that you would in- inspire us. And Lord, I pray that we would go home different the way we were when we walked in here today. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.